You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Andre Debuse III. He's the author of The Cage Keeper and Other Stories, Blues Man, and the New York Times bestsellers, House of Sand and Fog, The Garden of Last Days, and his memoir, Townie. Andre Debuse has been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, the National Magazine Award for Fiction, two Pushcart Prizes, and an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. His books are published in over 25 languages, and he is a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His new novel is Such Kindness, published by Norton. On the show, we talked about what he begins with, how much he knows about his characters before he starts writing, writing interiority, writing in his car, having a father who's a writer, why he's haunted by his novel, The House in Sand and Fog, his problem with social media, and much, much more. But before we bring him on, a few words about Patreon. If you found the show useful to your writing life, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing and become a supporter. There are perks for supporters and any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. For more than 20 years, the show broadcast at KUCI on the UC Irvine campus. During COVID, Marie and I began doing the show from our homes. We never returned to the station because we found that the show worked from doing it from our homes, yet it takes even more energy and time than before. If you'd like the show to continue, please think about contributing. Even a few dollars a month will help us to continue bringing writers on writing to you. And now, from my talk with Andre Debuse, author of Such Kindness. I'm so happy to talk with you again. It's been a long time, and um, I I loved this book, Such Kindness. Oh, I loved it. I went through it, I think, in two days. And wow. I would love to hear you talk about how it came about. Yeah, okay. Um, sometimes I don't know. In this case, I do. What happened? Um, I was visiting someone I love. Uh, a man I'm, I've known for years who had a fall from grace, who was living in subsidized housing. And I just brought to bring him, I think I, I went and brought him a cup of coffee or something. And, uh, you know, he was in his probably late 50s, early 60s, very cultured guy. Uh, and his little unit was full of books and music and art. And, and then his next door neighbor came over to bum a butt. And, and she was wearing pajama bottoms and a hoodie and she's like 30 years younger and she'd never gotten out of high school and she had two or three kids and she was poor. And, and they're the kinds, of, you know, those are the kind of people I grew up with. You know, uh, I was, I'm the son of a single mom and three siblings and we, we grew up like that. And so as I, I only stayed a few minutes and I chatted with her and him and, and on the drive away, I could just feel, uh, Barbara, this deep dread 
<laughs> no, um, I, honestly, so so where does such kindness and novel come from? I think it primarily comes from my absolute fear that I'm not conscious of. I think it just it, it's in my psyche that um, that I'll fall back to the scarcity that I knew as a kid. And. Um, and on one level, I'm fine. I would be fine with that. Uh, so it's, it's less of a fear now. You know what? It's less of a fear. It was more of a fear when we were raising our three kids who are now all grown. But uh, I think the whole time we were raising them, the fear was, for me, um, I'm going to fall back to how I was raised and how am I going to claw my way out of this? So I think the whole novel uh, comes from my own demons uh, about many things. Um, one of which is it's been very hard for me to get used to abundance, very hard. And that shows up in the novel, as you know, thematically. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if that fear, has that fear that you used to feel writing your books, was that part of what drove you to write them, to make them as wonderful as you could, to get them done? I mean, so many people start projects and... They go on, a book will go on for 10 years before, yeah, sure, <laughs> longer before they finish. Sure. No, I, you, you mean in terms of, am I thinking about getting paid for a book? That yeah, kind the of motivation, like if I don't do this, I'm going to have to do this other thing or I'll never, I'll never attain any sort of success. No, no, you know, let me be very clear. I, I never think of that um, when it comes to my writing. I just don't, you know, I've got a truck and a bunch of tools, like my main character in that <laughs> book. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been, I was a bartender for 10 years. I can cater, I can teach classes. And so, you know, I've been very fortunate to, to make a really lovely living off writing for the last 25 years, but I never count on it. And, and I, 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 so, you know, I've got a shed full of tools that I, I'll never throw out. What if, what if, what if this writing thing goes south? What I can, if it doesn't work out, right? I'll build you a deck. But my, but the larger point though for me, Barbara, is, and I think it's really important. I think for anyone who's who's in the creative arts, is I try not to ever think about, like I try not even to, I try not to write a book. Like so, even though I'm in that privileged position of getting a contract and a publisher and an advance and a deadline, I don't pay attention to the deadline and I and I never turn in pages and when I show up to write five six days a week I I don't tell myself I'm writing a new book I tell myself oh no all I and I don't tell myself anything I ask myself what's that character doing now where did I leave him where did I leave her am I capturing the truth of their moments and I and honestly I get in my daily time and then I don't think about it until the next day I don't talk to anyone about it. And it still takes me a long time. I mean, this one was a pretty fast draft for me, like three years, but it takes me about five years to write a novel for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Um, and you mentioned your carpentry, you know, your tools. And, and I knew that you were a carpenter at one point. And Tom Lowe, your protagonist, um, is a builder and has built this lovely, wonderful house that is no longer his. Mm. And so I was also thinking about such kindness and the house of sand and fog, and they both have these house themes. And I don't know if you were thinking of that when you were writing such kindness. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, you know, and I'm, as a fellow writer, I'm sure you would agree. It's, it's just all so subconscious and self, hopefully not self-conscious, 
unconscious from the psyche. You know, um, when I was touring for House of Sin and Fog all those years ago, one of the interviewers said, only someone who's never had a home could write this story of everyone losing everything over home. And I hadn't had a home yet then. And I and I almost cried when the interviewer said that because I felt so naked. Um, you know, I don't know. This is the 25th place I've lived. And we've been here for 20 years. I, I built this house as my character does in such kindness. I built it with my brother. He designed it. And it's the first home I ever owned. We moved in when I was 45. And uh, it's the first time I, I, I never had a landlord. And, and honestly, still, you know, I'll be lying in bed, Barbara, and I'll be I hear some some tires rolling over this 200 foot gravel driveway in the woods. I, I expect it's the landlord coming for the rent that we don't have. So it's, it's weird. I, I you know, I, we've been financially comfortable for a couple of decades, my dancing wife and I. And but I still think like a poor person. And um I think all of that just goes into that character, Tom Lowe Jr. in this novel. So how much did you know about him? Because at some point, I think it was at least in the middle of the book, we find out he's a Leo. And so mm. thinking, you know, how much did you know going in or did he reveal himself to you as you went along in the draft? Yeah, B, right? And that the way it goes? He, he revealed himself uh, as I went along. It, it's just like dating someone. <laughs> or I haven't been on a date in 100 years, but it's, well, with my wife, I have. But it's like getting to know someone, right? You, you think, okay, I think I know what kind of guy he is. And you're totally wrong. And you get to know someone over the course of years, and you just, one layer keeps revealing itself. And um yeah, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know a lot of things. And what I didn't know, too, was how. So let me back up. I think I begin every story that I try to write with nothing but questions. And, and, and the big question is, well, what would it be like to be in this situation? What would it be like to be this man or woman, boy or girl, what, whatever, non-binary, whatever it is? What would it be like to be this human being in this moment, in this place? And I'm always, for me, and I've never, I was telling Fontaine, my wife, the other day, I've been writing f almost 40 years daily, and it, I've lost no enthusiasm for it. I'm as excited about it as I ever have been, and it's because I never know what the hell's going to happen next. <laughs> so, I mean, he surprised me. Uh, the, so the central question for me was, how does a man who's lost everything, how does an adult human who's lost everything proceed? How do you keep living? What's your next step? How do you, and, and I, he went somewhere so surprising to me. I had no idea he was going to become the guy he becomes in that book. Cause I think I would have done differently. Really? Yeah. He stays so positive, right? I mean, he, yeah. just, how is this possible? <laughs> yeah. I, I, he rejected, you know, without giving much away for anyone, but, you know, so the novel begins, as you know, he's stolen his uh, former banker's trash. And this is a, a young banker who talked him into an adjustable rate mortgage that my main character had no business signing. As a self-employed carpenter, there's no steady income. And um, it contributes to his demise financially and otherwise. And of course, he also falls off a roof, gets hurt. He's on painkillers. Um, 
So as I'm writing, you know, I'm feeling my anger towards the banking industry. I'm feeling my anger towards the fact that not one, except one, one, one banker in the whole 2008 crisis went to jail, just one. And I talk about him in the book. Nobody else went to jail. They're still rich. Everyone else is poor. I had all my anger about it, but he would not accept it. He didn't. I, so I thought, okay, he's going to do what I would do, which I'm going to take that goddamn banker hostage. And I'm going to, I mean, I wouldn't, but I could still, my, my anger was not his. And, and again, it's what I love about writing. It became something else. He, he said, no, no, that's not what I am. I'm over here. Okay. Then I follow him. Well, Jamie, a side character has a lot of anger, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's like, I'm going to do this because those guys, did you give some of your anger to Jamie? Uh, I think he relieves, he released some of my anger. Yeah. Yeah. So Jamie's this kid who starts to get involved in the story. And yeah, J Jamie is much more in line with me, although I'm not proposing that it's, it's right to steal people's trash and, you know, <laughs> commit petty larceny or it's probably larceny larceny but i identified with his anger towards credit card companies i identify with his lack of remorse about stealing from banks and credit card companies but i don't think that's the way to fight them right right um i i did a little looking around and i found an interview with you and somebody named salvador I, it might have been from a while back. And you said, when I write a story, I'm never gripped with a desire to tell the story. I'm gripped with a desire to find the story, to find it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Embellish on that a little bit. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, For me, anyway, I was at a party a few years ago and a friend of mine from college years earlier in the 1970s, she was the one who was going to be the writer. And we all loved, I still remember one of her short stories from 1977 hmm. and vividly. And we all thought, okay, well, she's going to be a writer. And she didn't, she did other things, which is fine. But so anyway, we're at this party. One of my friends asks this friend, Hey, how come you've never written? And I was just walking by, you know, with a plate of food. And she said, Oh, I just realized I had nothing to say. And I, as I walked by and I've been writing for a few years and I thought, well, thank God I never thought that way. <laughs> I sure as I don't think I have anything to say. I just have things that I want to explore right. and which is different. And so um, I have found in the past that if I've been gripped with a story that I want to tell, grab somebody by the lapels and say, you got to listen to this. I tend to kill the story. It's too much authorial control for me. It's too much authorial intent. It's too much authorial desire. You know, I love this line from Blaise Pascal. He said, I mean, it's harsh, but I, I, I love it. Anything written to please the author is worthless. Hmm. And that's, I don't think that's to suggest that we can't enjoy what we're doing. I, I certainly love writing or I wouldn't do it. But what I love about that line from Pascal is I think what he's suggesting is just because you the all-knowing, all-powerful writer wants something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen from you. Mm -hmm. And I found time and time again that, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, Barbara, I think that like 95% of whatever I put out in the world in terms of my writing are the phoenixes that rose from the ashes of either what failed or what became something other than I had any intention of writing. Mm -hmm. 
And it just always, so, I mean, again, you know, I've been teaching writing like a lot of writers at, at the university level for years. And, and I, you know, I, I, I keep repeating myself. I, I keep saying the same thing. What essentially what I say, what I find myself trying to communicate is I think the writing is larger than the writer. Hmm. And our job is to show up and empty ourselves of our ego and really just be, you know, there's a wonderful, I talk about William Stafford, you know, the poet, he said, the poet before writing must put her state herself into a state of openness or receptivity. And he defined being receptive as, in, in this beautiful short essay, he defined being receptive as one, you're willing to accept anything that comes no matter what it is, which is easier said than done, right? And two, and this is really hard, I think, especially for Americans, you're willing to fail. You're willing to fall flat on your face and have it just be a total mess and start over. And I think if you can really do that, you are empty and something special may come. Mm. And it's usually the last goddamn thing you wanted, <laughs> but it's not about the writer. Well, do you keep a, a writer's notebook or anything? I mean, will you write down ideas or do you think if this is an idea worth pursuing, I'll remember it? It's kind of both for me. I um, do. Do you do that? Do you do both? I do both. Yeah. Yeah, both. But I, I, I used to take write down story ideas more frequently. But they'll be very, very uh, shadowy and fragmented. I'll just I'll write something like, um, unhappy marriage, Ipswich, <laughs> <laughs> boat. You know, like maybe I. I had a drink on a boat with a marriage that looked disastrous and I'll just question mark, question mark. Um, and I'll put a date on it and I'll, I'll throw it into this idea notebook. And then every few years when I finish something, I'll, I'll go through them and see if anything still has my interest, but almost none of them do. Honestly, <laughs> I don't think any of them ever go, Oh, well, let me try that. In the meanwhile, in the meantime, something else has come to me that I'm curious about, but it's always got to be for me. What, what am I curious about? Sure. sure. Um, so there was in that same interview, um, you said, okay, you said, I know Sand and Fog became a big success, but I'm haunted by it. I think a better writer would have written a better book and I'd like another stab at it. Yeah. I was curious about that. I mean, do you feel that way about all of your books after they're written and published? Every single one. I could have, I could have done better. No, I don't think I could have done better. I, I think that a better writer would oh, certainly have a better book than I just did because I really do revise until I drop. I mean, I, I mean, all those sports cliches, I really try to leave the fight in the ring and the race on the road. I mean, I, 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 I revise and rewrite so much. Like, you know, like such kindness took two and a half, three years to write and another two years of just revising the hell out of it. And and that's true for all, all the novels I've published. And, you know, I love that line from Samuel Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, never mind, try again, fail better. You know, I have friends and maybe you do too. And, you know, they're wonderfully accomplished writers and really established and well-known and beautiful body of work. And I won't name names, but one will say, yeah, I got a new book coming out. Can't wait for it to come out. It's a great book. I say, are you kidding me? God, I wish I felt that way. I just always feel like apologizing and then running and hiding. 
say, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. I, it, I've never felt anything but that. And I've gotten used to it. So this book has, um, you know, among reviews, it's gotten a starred review from Publishers Weekly. So don't can't you read that review and go, well, maybe it's okay this time? <laughs> well, actually, I don't read reviews. You don't I, read them? I, no, I don't read them. I don't even read the good ones. I And I didn't know, I didn't have to. A writer friend of mine said, well, you don't have to. I don't. Um, no, I mean... You know, I, I think often a lot about a wonderful line from a Nadine Gorderman novel called A Son's Story, where one character, middle-aged lady, is having lunch with her girlfriend, and, and she has an insight as to what sincerity is, and, and it's this line, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself. And, and so for me, the reason I, 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 I don't read reviews is I'm aware of this guy, Andre, who who writes books. I don't want to think about him. I don't want to think about him. I don't want to look in the mirror and see him. Um, and, but here's what I'm trying to get to. I think it's okay to feel like a miserable piece of garbage every time you finish a book. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that too many writers, especially as we get older, I'm thinking about people who put, put off their writing until they've raised their families or, you know, gotten divorced or retired, you know, all understandable things. And, um, and now it's their time to write their, to do their work before they die. I think that what we tend to do is we ask writing to do something for us that we shouldn't ask it to do. Hmm. I think if you're right, I, it, it's not therapy. It's not, it's not a good workout. It's not lovemaking. It's hard, scary work. If I, if I finish writing, Barbara, and I walk around feeling sexy and successful and like I kicked ass, I probably didn't write well. <laughs> but if I'm walking around after a writing session and I feel kind of naked and ugly and inappropriate and ignorant and insensitive and wrong and raw, hey, maybe, maybe you wrote well today. <laughs> but I learned not to ask writing to make me feel good. I, I'll go work out for two hours. I'll go cook a meal for my family. I'll do some carpentry, whatever. Um, have coffee with a friend, but does this make sense? So if, if, if that, it, I don't ask writing to make me feel good. I don't ask my writing career to make me feel a certain way. I just try to focus on these characters. <laughs> Am I being true to them? And if, and that's all I can do. And, and even then, I don't know if I have, but I sure as hell try. Hmm. Well, what's the hardest thing about <clears throat> writing this book? writing such kindness. Do you remember running into a wall and going, ah, I don't know what to do here. And then you, of course, figured it out. But. I think um, it was just being in the psyche of such a broken man. You know, um, I think I'm being honest when I say I've never been depressed. That's bullshit. I am not being honest. <laughs> I was really depressed as a kid. I was depressed from about, you know, after my parents split up and were living in poor neighborhoods. And I wrote all about this in my memoir, Tony, but I think I was really depressed from about age nine to, to 19. Um, I, had, I don't think I've had much depression as an adult. I, anxiety all the time in, since I was a kid. I have a baseball bat right beside my bed and I lived in this big, beautiful house that Oprah helped me build in the woods and there's really no bad guys, but I still wait for them. But my point is, um, it was, I, I think the challenge was to, 
to just be in this guy's skin, in the skin of a man who's just really depressed and is just slowly starting to come out of his, his, his slumpdom. And he, he does, he goes someplace that I, I really enjoyed where he went because it surprised me. Hmm. I'd love to hear you read from such kindness. Will you do that? I would be honored and thank you. I think I'll just read maybe like three and a half minutes from chapter three. So uh, we begin, he and a couple of young people he's met and lives with in the, he lives in section eight housing. Um, he's recovering from painkiller addiction for years now he's been sober, but uh, he's just stolen the trash of his former banker to try to get revenge on him financially looking for credit card information. I have spent many hours contemplating pain. Its constant presence seems like such a dark joke, really. Like the school bully who sits on your chest and spits in your face years after both of you have moved on. My pelvis and hips were fractured years ago. Do they have to keep spitting in my face? It's close to nine and I lie on plywood over the cushions of my couch in the eight. On the floor near my feet is the Andrews household's unopened trash bag. From here, I can see through the thin plastic the outlines of commercial-sized envelopes, a sheaf of papers, and what looks like a pencil. On the other side of the wall, there's only quiet, no yelling, no barely muffled video games, no fucking. All day and night, I hear through its concrete walls the muffled sounds of bad behavior. Trina yells at her babies. She calls them names. She swears at them. Sometimes her boyfriend, Brian, will be there, and he yells and swears at them all. Some got their units here in the eight by lottery, others because their family names were on the list for generations. I got mine through my former brother-in-law, Gerard, who was a boy when I married his older sister, a man who is now a lawyer and who, in an act of pity, secured me my own unit here in the eight. My neighbor, Fitz, drives a new Mustang. It's red with tinted windows, and when the inspectors come to check in and on us, he hides it out behind the dumpsters filled with wet diapers and cigarette butts, with old TV sets and eggshells and used condoms, with plastic toys and empty bottles of wine. Fitz only pays me 75% the value of my EBT card. It's what I have to do so that I can buy the liquid pain distractor that keeps me from falling back to the O's that in toilet paper, which I'm not, not allowed to put on my EBT card. After Fitz's cut, I'm left with only $100.38 for the month. And now Drew's birthday is in less than a week, though I have never stopped thinking of my son, ever. In the unit across the dirt yard from Trina's lives a young couple. He's black and she's white. And if I add their two ages together, I've still been on this earth 10 years longer. The woman's name starts with an A, Amber or Ashley, and she must have gotten pregnant in high school, and now they have three brown babies all under the age of six. Those kids are always dressed in clean clothes, their hair and faces washed. Two boys and a girl their mother doesn't let play with Trina's kids, who are not clean and do not wear clean clothes. Trina's little one, Cody, five years old, looked at me one summer afternoon as I rose slowly from my Taurus, and he opened his little mouth and yelled, fucka. In the next unit over lives an old woman. 
I believe she's close to 100. Every afternoon, a visiting nurse shows up in her blue Corolla. She spends an hour in there, then leaves. On Sundays, the old woman's son picks her up for church in his sedan, its rear passenger doors covered with white letters and cursive, Bon Giovanni shoe repair. He's a big man like me, though he has 20 years on me and is clean shaven, his bald head covered with a scally cap he takes off before stepping into his mother's unit. For the thousandth time, I think I do not belong here. I do not belong here with any of these people. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So much. It was lovely to hear that. Do you read aloud as you're writing? I do sometimes, yeah. Do you? Sometimes. Yeah, I, I find I, I do it when I, I've been working on a paragraph way too long and I just have to step away from it. And then I'll, before I work on it again the next day, I'll, I'll, I'll read it out loud and, and, and try to find what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Or maybe what's right. Maybe just say, well, it's not, keep going. <laughs> you know, when I was reading this, I was thinking about what, um, writers hear all the time, which is, you know, your, your protagonist needs to want something. What does your protagonist want more than anything in the world? And as I, as I read your book, I thought what he wants, what Tom wants is his son. He wants his relationship with his son. Mm. Um, and it just kept coming back, coming back. Is that, is that the thing? Is that what, what is driving him? Is that what he wanted more than anything? I think so. I mean, I, I do hold that the readers of a writer's book, I'll speak for myself. I feel like readers are much smarter about what I've written than I am. So <laughs> I, I'd be curious what you would say. I, I do know that there's a wonderful line. Who's the short story writer who said that uh, it's very Zen-like that, uh, that, uh, that, that the root of all trouble is desire and if you if you have a character with no desire, then you're you've hamstrung your character, and and I think that's really right on. But I I, I try not to manufacture a desire. I, again, I try to find it. And and what became very clear was early on. Okay, he's got a son. He has not been there for him through most of his teenage years because of his whole family situation falling apart. And the kids leave in his teens. He's turning twenty, and he just wants to go spend some time with them. But his car has been towed. <laughs> He's broke, doesn't have a phone. And, um, you know, I became a father 30 years ago and now we're blessed with three kids and nothing. I just feel like my life began when I became a father. Like it, it didn't even count until I became a dad. And, and so I felt real power in that desire just to spend time with his son on his 20th birthday in some way. But I think ultimately as I, as I kept writing from Tom Lowe's point of view, um, what became clear was he had never quite let go of his desire to get back to where he was. And it's somewhere in the book, right? In the story that he accepts, I, I'm never going to get back to where I was. Mm -hmm. And that was a, that was a revelation for me as well. Oh, sorry, phone. I'm going to get rid of this. Yeah, that was, that was painful. That was uh, pretty painful, you know, and yet he's accepting, he's sort of accepting what he's brought on or what he's allowed to, to uh, come to him through mistakes, you know, mm. I, I, mortgage and falling off the roof. 
Right. And of course, wasn't his it wasn't his fault he fell off a roof, but all the factors led to that accident, mm -hmm. right? Oh man. Sorry. So Sorry, I've got a junk mail call. Hold on. <laughs> Don't you love it? So funny. It's one of these junk mails that Tom Lowe would have gotten. Here, I'll mute while you talk. So in another, in the same interview, I think you quoted um, something our mutual friend Richard Bausch said, and he said, if you think you're thinking when you're writing, think again, you're much closer to the dreaming side when you're writing. So just dream, dream, dream it through. Then when you're done, try to look at what you've dreamed like a doctor looks at an x-ray and try to be terribly smart about it. So what do you love about that line? Oh, God, I think it's so helpful for writers. And I, I use it all the time when I teach writing. Um, I love, uh, he's right. And, and, and you know, time and time again, I, I see too many writers, young or not so young, who are, who are letting their own ethereal desire control the story. And they're not letting it just go its own way. And so dream it through. Well, how do you dream it? Well, technically, I think if you put two things together, the dreaming will happen. One, you have to be authentically curious. And you can't, you know, I don't know if you've, years ago, I tried to fall in love with someone before I met my future wife. It didn't work. And most, for most of us, it didn't work. You either fall in love with someone or you don't. And in the same way, I would argue, you can't be, be you can't judge what you're curious about. You're either curious about a situation or not. So that's part one. And then if you bring in concrete, specific, you know, specificity and sensory detail, I think a wonderful alchemy begins where the scenes start to present themselves Characters start to do things you don't see coming, and it starts to write itself. It feels like you're in that wonderful trance state where you're just dreaming it through. And to me, that's that's still the joy. It's still why I write, for that feeling, for that, that wonderful feeling of writing this wave you didn't see coming. And um, what I love about the second part is, and then look at it, try to be terribly smart about it. You know, I've really disciplined myself the last few years, Barbara, to after I finished the draft or something to put it aside for at least six months then sure. and, and ideally a year and then pick it up and you will be looking at it with new eyes and you won't, you'll be reading it like a reader. And also you'll, you'll be smarter about what the story is about. And then you can make some wonderful decisions about what to cut, what to keep just because this is the fourth scene in what I wrote, maybe it should be scene 40. In fact, maybe scene 40 should be scene one. And to me, that's the, the revision process for me is the most enjoyable part of writing. I just love it. And so I think Bausch is, I think that he captures it all there. So when you're letting letting a novel rest, what are you doing? Are you working on something else? You yeah, I write other stuff. I can't not write. So I mean, I, I will go a week or two of, of just instead of, you know, during my writing time in the morning, I'll read instead. I'll just, which is great because writing, I mean, reading is writing. But then we do start something. And, um, you know, we we're talking about the short story form. I, I just I love that form. And so I'll, I'll write something short and mm -hmm. then I'll get back to the novel with new eyes. Mm -hmm. And I did such kindness. I put down for six months and then I wrote I wrote a novella and a short story. And and then read it with new <laughs> merciless eyes. <laughs> So the so how similar then does the book look like your original draft? I mean, was the beginning the beginning and 
No, it's so different. It is so different. And so the finished book, as you know, begins with stealing the banker's trash. That was probably on page 120. Hmm. And we had all of this buildup of, it began with him, a real time scene. uh, And now it's compressed and summarized, but it began with him uh, driving Trina to sell her plasma for rent and mm-hmm. give gas money and his, his car gets towed in the first scene. And, but, but honestly I had to discover him. And, and, and so, you know, after that first big draft reading, it was, it was really hard. It, it's already difficult that the, the readers got to sit through some, some pain in, in the final draft, but it was a lot worse in the, in the first drafts where I was really discovering all the forces that got him on that plywood couch in section eight housing. I was discovering everything about his marriage and how it failed and everything about his drug addiction, everything about his, his poverty stricken childhood and fatherlessness for him. And, and then I had to just, just because I, you know, we got the, the, the Hansel and Gretel crumbs to the cabin. Let's just start the cabin. We don't have to bring the reader through the Hansel and Gretel crumbs. <laughs> it, it, it's hard because you really, I mean, you know, Faulkner talked about it famously. You got to murder your darlings, but it, it's hard to cut scenes you worked really hard on. And they might've been pretty good, but mm-hmm. I cut them. So you cut them. Do you save them for something else or do you just, that's it. They're gone. I, I mean, I don't throw away anything. I write longhand pencil and notebooks. So I have hundreds of notebooks. I don't throw them away. And I have, you know, I don't throw them away, but I've really gone back. I did go back once, and I want to share this. I, my first novel that I tried to write was after my first book came out, a collection of stories in 1989. And I was working on a, I would say three separate times, Barbara, over three years each for like nine total years, I was trying to fictionalize having grown up in a mill town uh, in first world poverty with single mom, sex, drugs, rock and roll, violence, and um, and and they were all bad books. And 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 I I think the first one was particularly bad because I was still mad at my childhood. Mm-hmm. I, I felt sorry for myself. I you know I don't anymore. Uh, I I was mad at my parents. And and it all showed in that that draft. So it was a dishonest you know therapy session that no one should read. But I kept all twenty two notebooks and I was going through them and I found one honest moment one honest moment that wasn't bullshit. And it was an image of my best friend at the time. We were 14, 15 years old. We were a bunch of street delinquents in this mill town in the seventies. And, you know, rich kids go skiing, poor kids do this thing where you, you wait for someone to, you know, come out of the packy, the package store and it's winter time and you hold onto their back bumper and you ski off down the road. And he, this kid, his real name was Scott. He would hold on longer than any of us. Like he was going 40, 45 miles an hour. Then he let go and he rolled for like, you know, hundred yards. And um, he ended up dying at 25, stabbed to death. And, uh, and I took that and I wrote an essay and then I folded it into my memoir townie years later. So of, of that almost three year effort in a novel that failed, I got an essay. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't bullshit. It was honest. And I wasn't trying to, you know, make a point. Mm-hmm. You do interiority so well. And I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, does that come 
natural for you? Is that what you see as one of your strengths in writing? Or do you have to work at it? I think I have to work at it, but I, I will tell you it's what turns me on about fiction and literature more than anything. So one of my former students is a neuroscientist and a novelist. His name is Eric uh, Hoel, H-O-E-L. He just published his first book called The Revelations. He is actually studying neuros, he's studying consciousness as a neuroscientist. And um, he's got this wonderful essay where he talks about the paranoia that publishers and writing people have that, you know, virtual reality and streaming services and computers and, you know, the visual world will take away books. And he makes an incredibly beautiful point. He said, look, uh, books in literature and fiction are in danger of being ignored, but not replaced. And he makes this point as a neuroscientist who studies consciousness. He said, with extrinsic media, film, et cetera, we have to rely on Meryl Streep's incredibly beautiful face and talent to have a, an idea of what this character is feeling. We have no idea what's going on inside her head or heart or body. Um, and, he, and so Howell says that's extrinsic art. But what we do, what fiction writers do is intrinsic. And he says it's still the only, and he uses the word technology, that can capture and penetrate the consciousness of another human being. Hmm. Nothing else comes close. And so to answer your question, it, to me, it is what I, it, it's the kind of fiction I prefer to read. I'm not big on things happening. I'm much more interested in what's it like to be in the moment that's happening. And I guess that's what I bring to it is, is that's what really excites me. And, and I tend to read writers who, who go there too. Mm. And, um, but thank you for the compliment. That's encouraging. You're welcome. Um, well, I have to ask you about social media because yeah. I, know, I know that you don't like it. And, um, and, you know, I was thinking about that, like a lot of writers now starting out, especially are encouraged or even it's a demand. You have to have a website, you have to be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever, TikTok, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? And if, if you were starting out now, yeah. Well, what do you think you would do? Since yeah, I, I don't know. Let me just pull back on that. You know, I um, I know it's not all bad. I, I have some friends who are shut-ins and Facebook or whatever those things are. You know, it's it's their community. Um, but I'm going to get to your question. But first of all, I, I do despise social media. I, January 6th wouldn't have happened without it. Mm -hmm. It's really heading towards civil war in our country with algorithmic rabbit hole crap and we won't get into. Um, I've never gone on it. And, and part of it is, I, I think that it's made us all the curator of the museum of me. It's made us all toxically self-conscious and, and self-absorbed. Who gives a shit what you had for lunch after your tennis game with your friend on the boat? But to your point about young writers, I get so angry, Barbara. Okay, so my $27.95 hardcover that someone's gonna buy, I'm gonna get $2.79.5 for that. I'm sorry, and the publisher gets the rest. Do your goddamn job and promote our books. Don't put it on us, that's your goddamn job. It makes me so angry. And, and it's, uh, I, I, I would love to see every writer just revolt. No, we're not doing it, screw you. I, I'm sorry. And look, I love publishers and it's not easy for them. They've got to, they, they have their, their job is to get our books out there and they've got all these distractions and roadblocks in front of them from the digital world. So I'm not anti-publisher. I am anti 
I am anti doing anything that doesn't help the writer write the next book. Mm -hmm. Your job is to get that book out there. My job, I'm going to write another one. And part of me, I, honestly, I mean, if I were starting out, I don't know what I would do. I, I, I detest, I, I don't know. I, I just, God damn, I've never even sent a text. I don't have an iPhone. I will not call it a smartphone. I hate, I hate what those have done to people. You know, I've been teaching young people for 33 years at university level. I've watched their joy plummet. And I've watched the depression, anxiety, you know, studies have backed this up. And it's not just global warming and mass shootings, which are horrible enough, especially mass shootings. It's the, it's the crack gadgets, that's what I call them, right. that they're on six to 11 hours a day. So I, I, I would love to see all of us turn our back on all of this and get back to books and life and looking at each other in the eye. And it's easier said than done. I know I've got a career and, you know, I don't, you know, my publisher would like to see me on social media, but I refuse. But I can tell you this, if it was a choice between publishing another book and going social media, I wouldn't do it. I would write and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it because uh, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I think it's, I, 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 I'm just, I think it's a really dark turn in our, in our lives. And so I won't do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so many people I talk to say they, you know, go to Facebook and get off Facebook and feel worse, right? Or or wherever. And studies have shown depression goes up in people after they look at everyone's shining lives. Right. And what does it have to do with, we're here, you know, there's a wonderful line from a Mary Oliver poem. I just love it. She says, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Mm-hmm. How am I going to be astonished at not paying attention? So anyway, right. I don't want to get on the soapbox, but I have very strong feelings about it. Well, I wanted to hear your strong feelings. <laughs> What's that? I said I wanted to hear your strong feelings. That's why I asked you. So I appreciate my poor family. I mean, everybody I know and love, you know, is on yeah. the screens, and I'm I'm just not. Yeah. I mean, I miss stuff. You know, group chats with my kids, whatever that is, photos. <laughs> my like, hey, did you? I love that picture of your oldest son in LA. So, what picture? Oh, yeah, it's on social media. You didn't see it. Yeah, but I still. <laughs> well, we have a few minutes left. And I, I mean, there's so much more, but I wanted to ask you about um, your novels are all so different. Hmm. They're all so different to me. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm ascertaining from what you've been saying that that's not on purpose. I mean, it happens that way because you're following kind of your desire or your inclination or your idea that won't leave you alone. Mm. I just find it really interesting. I mean, I think, I don't know. I don't know if that, what you think about that or if you think about that. I like, I like hearing that Barbara, that, I, that sounds lovely to me. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of I guess I'm not aware of my work. You know, I, I, I just throw myself into the story for the years it takes to write it. And then it's like an ex-lover. You just wish them well and don't see them anymore. <laughs> you know? So I don't, I don't know. I'm glad that you think they're different. I, I know that uh, I did have an insight. I think when I was writing an essay recently about themes. Oh, I was asked by someone, what are your themes? And I, I don't know, beats me. But I do know, I do seem to be haunted in all my fiction, short and long, with how wrongly a life can go. I, I think I am haunted, just as a human being, not as a writer, you know, 
at how how it can really just go south fast and then what then what do you do and um one thing i like about this new novel is i wasn't trying to write a redemptive ending and it's not you know there's still a lot of pain and shadow at the end but it seems to be more hopeful than other books I've written. And I, I like that. I wasn't trying to write one, but I'll take it. Was the ending when you came to the end? I mean, did you, I mean, you've done a lot of revisions, so I don't know that you knew it was the end. I mean, how, yeah. how do you know when you're at the end? I, I, um, so there, our kids are grown now, but when they were little, you know, we come, I come home on a Friday and be excited because we get to, you know, hang out with the kids and ice cream and pizza and cartoons and games. And, and then, and then I come home on a Friday and they'd all be gone at friends' houses for the weekend. Wouldn't see them at all. And then Sunday night, and I won't be able to sleep. What kind of houses are they at? What are the people like? Do they own weapons? And then Sunday night, all three kids are tucked in, they're back in their beds and I'm lying in bed next to my wife and I can sleep. And that's how I know I'm done with a piece of writing. I feel the same way. I feel like everybody's tucked in. And, and, and it doesn't have to be closure. There doesn't have to be resolution even. But I think that also for me, an ending should be musical in that, um, what do I mean by that? You know, I don't know anything about classical music, but if I'm listening to a symphony or something, it seems to me that the most moving endings to a piece of music is whatever instruments have been played earlier somehow resonate or tinkle or something in the last moments. And so where the novel ends where such kindness ends, I felt that. I feel like all the, all the instruments are at least in the room being played a little bit and now I can sleep. Hmm. That's a great metaphor. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to, you know, your father was such a writer, was a notable writer. I have one of his books on my shelf. I think it's his last essay collection. And mm. um, and you've written about him in Townie. But mm. I was curious how it was like to grow up with a father who was a writer. And did you ever imagine yourself growing up to be a writer? No, I didn't. I For you. And I think, which I, I think I, I, I think I addressed this, yeah, a little bit in Townie, but um, you know, like 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 maybe most kids, I didn't think about what my parents did to make a living. In their case, they didn't make much of a living, not a criticism. They just never had any money. And, um, you know, when I first read my father's work, I was visiting his mother in Louisiana, and she was shocked that I was 17, 18, 19 years old, and I hadn't read his first book, which is, was his only novel, The Lieutenant. And I, and I read it that afternoon, and I and I... I was so moved and I thought, wow, he did that. And then I read the first short story of his is called Killings, which is made into the film In the Bedroom, which was up for Academy Award. Beautiful, incredible, disturbing story. And I remember, Barbara, I, I went for a walk. It was a gray day in New England in winter. And I, I went for a walk after I had just read The Grapes of Wrath for college. And I was so moved by that book. And then I read my father's 21 page masterpiece. And it was, it was, it was as strong as the grapes of wrath. And, and I remember looking up at a bare branch and thinking, okay, this is where my dad's been all my life. He's mm -hmm. been with people like that in his books. And part of me felt, I forgave him. Part of me was, well, if that's what he's doing, I, I guess I can live with it then because wow, that's special what he does. 
and now I teach that story. I teach my father's work all the time at the University of Massachusetts, and it's it's a joy. Um, did I ever think I was going to be a writer? No, but I always loved reading and writing. I was that nerdy kid who looked forward to writing a paper. <laughs> and uh, but honestly, it wasn't like even a shadow thing. Oh, I don't want to follow the great man's, you know, with the same friggin' name too. No, it was it was more like psychic math. There's already a writer in my family and a writer named Andre Debus. I must be something else. And so it didn't occur to me that I could that I might that it might be me. But I have to say, you know, life is so wonderful and mysterious and beautiful and gray. You know, I, you know, just lately in my life, I've been feeling such gratitude for for finding writing in my early twenties, mm-hmm. and and I just can't imagine having done anything else. And teaching too, I love I love teaching, and um, I feel so. I feel so blessed that I didn't, I was able to not let my father's shadow, which was profound, keep me from doing it. I'm, and you know, I write about this in Tony, but when I found writing, it saved my life. I was on a really dark, violent road and it really got me to a better place. And it's, you know, the, the writer, Thomas Williams, beautiful novelist. I don't know if you know, do you know Thomas Williams's work? The hair of Harold Rue, like hair on your head, won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1975. Beautiful novelist, literary writer, you know, like my dad, a writer's writer. And they were they were friends. And uh, he was asked late in his life, he said, Mr. Williams, why do you write? I said, oh, that's easy. I, I write so I don't die before I'm dead. <laughs> and 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 that's and that's how I've always felt. I, I think I, if I go three days, two, three days without writing, I just feel fucked up. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I walk six feet that way and my soul lingers. And so it's been a lovely surprised that there's been a a writing life career. I hate the word career. I I never say it, but there's been a publishing life that that came. I never thought that would happen. Hmm. I'm glad it did. Well, thank you. And before we go, I wonder if you have any last words um, or advice for the, for the novelists um, out there making their way through a book. Well, I probably do. Um, I think especially for novelists, you know, I love Sue Miller, who's a friend and I, you know, love her work, of course. She's a great American novelist. She said, you know, writing a novel is like knitting an Argyle sock the size of a football field. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my, my two cents would be just, just be patient. Don't rush it. It's a slow, big form. It, I, I love the novel. I write those more than any, any other form. Be patient. Uh, take it one sentence at a time. Um, and don't ask your novel that you're writing to make you feel good about yourself because it won't. You'll probably feel lost <laughs> and overwhelmed. So, you know, go for a brisk walk, get an ice cream, do something else. And um, I don't know. The novel is such a big, beautiful form. And get lost in it. And enjoy getting lost. It's another reason I, I don't use GPS. I like getting lost. It's very, it's very good to get lost. Don't try to figure it out. Let go of the wheel. Turn off the headlights. Put a brick on the accelerator. Crawl <laughs> into the back seat. And all will be well. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour with me and with, with our listeners. Thank you. Barbara, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. And may the muse be with you. Thank you so much. 
Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen, and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type, and it's great to write by. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com and Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, stay in the chair. Thank you.